0: Are you passionate about resolving conflicts and making positive impact on the world? Then USD's Conflict Management and Resolution Master's program may be for you. Learn to address conflicts at all levels, from personal disputes to global crises. Join the Croc School's dedicated community fostering peace and understanding while you acquire practical skills to navigate diverse settings. Apply now and be the change you want to see in the world. Visit san Diego.edu slash peace slash V-O-S-D. That's san Diego.edu slash peace slash V-O-S-D. My name is Scott
1: Lewis. I'm the editor-in-chief at Voice of San Diego and the host of Good Schools for All. If you're interested in sponsoring one of our podcasts and associating your company's name or message with the great shows we produce, please let us know. Contact Aaron Zlotnick at... Erin at voiceofsandiego.org. That's E-R-I-N at voiceofsandiego.org.
0: My mom says my neighborhood school isn't good enough. How am I supposed to know my kids are getting the best education possible?
1: Welcome to Good Schools for All, a podcast from the investigative news organization Voice of San Diego and the Education Synergy Alliance.
2: We cut through the jargon and polarized debate to get you the news and ideas that matter. Good schools are at the heart of our democracy and economy, and we're about good schools for all kids.
1: We hope you'll learn and maybe teach us something.
0: It should be an excellent school in every community.
1: Enjoy the show. I'm Scott Lewis.
0: I'm Laura
2: Cohn.
1: Hi, Laura. Hi, Scott. How are you?
2: I'm doing really well. Yeah? Yeah, we're... uh we're in a big, intense teenager moment right now. Son got his driver's license last oh, Monday my. and got in his first fender bender on Tuesday. Oh, no. <laughs> Daughter's going to a quinceañera what did he do? tomorrow. he looked down at his... It, I don't think it was his phone, actually, but I think he was looking for a cord or something, so something phone-related and yeah. bumped into the person in front of him. Oh, So it's just a little bump, a little $1,500 bump. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I remember that sort of happened to me. I got my license... I was a good driver for a while, but then it was snowy and I was going down our street. I was in Salt Lake City and uh, I didn't realize that when you just slam on the brakes in the snow, nothing stops. <laughs> <laughs> it really, it makes it much worse. And it just rammed into this tree and the <sighs> tree bent slightly. And, uh, and you know, the bumper was all messed up and, and my dad that night made me go and talk to the owner and talked to the tree and we went or talked to the owner of the tree and not to the tree but uh, <laughs> but to this day if you drive down that street the tree is bent over a little bit with a big gnash <laughs> in the side. it's like grown over a little bit but it's yeah. like that's me man See, I yeah. tattooed you <laughs> so yeah uh, kids man yeah uh, last my 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 daughter was sick and you know it's one of those nights you just never know you've got this sick night and uh and we're taking care of her. And I'm like, you need some Tylenol or ibuprofen. We need to get this fever down. And she's like, I don't want to take it. And I'm like, why? The taste? What? And she's like, I don't want to stop being sick. Oh. Because she wanted to stay home so bad. Oh, I see. <laughs> and, I was, and I was like, well, that's that's really an interesting position to be up front about. <laughs> <laughs> oh, kids, man. Yep. Well, uh, it's a funny and interesting time, but it's also a tense time in San Diego's schools. Obviously, uh, um, up to fifteen hundred. We we getting the exact number has been a little hard, uh, but about fifteen hundred educators and uh, and school support staff and special ed and physical education and custodial staff at San Diego Unified School District received pink slips, and uh, and I think they're still going out. Um, I know there's some people. St- on edge right now wondering if they're going to get one uh we've done a lot of talking about that on our other podcast uh voice of san diego's main podcast so i'm not going to get too deep into it but this is real
2: it yeah it looks really devastating is too strong of a word but really intense for san diego it's gonna take a a couple of years to recover from this hit
1: I, i think what's hard for me and what's scary for me about it is you can look at why this is happening the Pension costs have uh, are hurting schools all across the state in a way. Uh, there's, did you see that story about Puerto Rico? No. Puerto Rico's pension fund for teachers is about to just run out of money. Oh. And uh, they, it's right now, it's it's basically a Ponzi scheme. Like they have to keep growing it to keep it even just going at all. Yeah. And and they used it as a way to illustrate like what's happening across the country, which is scary itself. But the, basically, that you know, to fund these pensions, um, these school districts are having to fund quite a bit more. They're having to put a lot more into these.
2: funds. Right. They've so. they've. It's been determined they've been underfunding them the last few years, so they're having to make up for that with some really h- huge escalations in their pension right contributions over the next few years.
1: Right. And so, um, y- you know, there's that. There's pensions. Now the um, uh, the other side is. San Diego Unified has made very recent decisions to give across the board educator raises, which, um, you know, we can debate about the uh, compensation of teachers and such. I have uh, no doubt that many of them deserve quite a bit more. It's just that that's an odd timing. I mean, it was literally just November that they made those. And so that's causing, um, they, you know, that caused a, a big hole. And what's scary is th- that there's uh, still a big deficit for next year. Even with this 124 million dollars in cuts, yeah, they're, still, they're like, well, at least it'll only it'll only be half what it is now, and it's like, oh no, that's just. And so, what scares me about it is that this is this is a good economy. I mean, hundreds of thousands of jobs were just reported created across the country. California's jobless rate is is half what it was during the recession. San Diego's is is close to, I mean, what we would describe as full employment. I mean, we're getting, obviously, there are people not making wages, great wages here, but the, but we can't complain about this economy. This is a really good economy.
2: Yeah, it's a pretty good economy. Now, the revenues coming down from the state are pretty level looking forward, a little bit up. mm mm-hmm. um, so it's not like revenues are booming from the school district side the the escalation that they were experiencing over in the last 3 years or so has definitely slowed down looking sure. forward to 1718 but that's better than being in a decline which is where they were previously and where they will be again if when the economy does an inevitable cycle
1: yeah and so what they're saying is that they're fixing it structurally for the long term and I guess that's good. I'm excited about that, but uh, yeah, man, like this is—if there's a recession, it's the same way I feel about the newspaper industry. There's going to be brutal outcomes, Mm -hmm. and so I'm on edge. And I'm, you know, I'm a member. I'm a—I have a parent. I'm a parent in this district. Uh, This is not something. I'm enjoying and I know there's a lot of people around me with a ton of questions and I can't get the answers. Uh very difficult out of this organization. So I I just wish it was clear that I'm not an enemy <laughs> to it. I want I'm scared for it. I'm with it. I'm in there. Yeah. And and I look at the teachers and the educators and the and the co- and the parents there and we're all we're all confused and worried. Right, I mean, and, yeah,
2: and I, wanting to be I don't know uh, part of the solution is is not the right language, but you want to be part of the decision making that decides how to survive, how to restructure right. uh, moving forward, and that that doesn't seem to be the approach that's being taken
1: I think um so there's a lot of interesting things happen like um you know they they cut they're they're really proud that they're keeping the class sizes the way they are, which I think is obviously there's a lot of um that's a lot of if that was changing, that would be a big, bigger deal, and I'm sure they would feel bad about that. Uh, and they're um, not, as far as I can tell, shortening the um, school year. So those are mm-hmm. two sort of significant things they they said. They obviously said we're not going to let those two things happen. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, there's a lot of really interesting things happening. So they cut, um, they're going to cut PE teachers, right? So these PE teachers go to elementary schools, and they do like an hour with each class, right? And that hour is kind of a big deal for. The teachers and the district saying you're not going to lose that prep hour so what's going to happen like they're gonna they're gonna end up balling all those hours together into some special like recess or something at the end of the week and and those teachers will get that time up but that but then that that all of the the cascading effects of that sort of decision making is interesting to me mm-hmm. and then if they cut educate they're cutting uh you know even some of the the people who provide services for moderately and severely disabled students, people with special education needs. And so that has to be provided. That service has to be provided. And so what's weird to me is they're they're not explaining to us how they're going to provide it. You know, they're they're not hmm. saying like there's a bunch of people sitting somewhere that could be doing that work with all the qualifications that requires. And they're going to fill in all these spots, and then it's going to bump a bunch of other people out.
2: Boy, and if you cut loose those folks, they will get snatched up by other districts. Yeah. They're hard to find. Good ones are hard to find. So they will; those folks will not have any trouble finding employment elsewhere. So once they're gone from San Diego Unified, it'll be hard to rebuild that capacity and that expertise.
1: Well, not every school district in San Diego is having this sort of trouble. Um, we have uh, had a conversation today and in, in, in this podcast with... David Miyashiro, he's uh, the superintendent at Cajon Valley Union School District.
2: Yeah, I'm really excited that he came in today. He's he's one of the best in the county, um, and he and Cajon El Cajon um, is a community that's been through a lot, including an influx of a lot of refugees um, over the last few years. So uh, it's very interesting to talk to him about how the school district is. Um, Loving on those kids as he'll yeah right. To us. So yeah. you
1: shared to just to illustrate what's changing. You shared this with me. It was fascinating. So this is the California Department of Social Services refugee arrivals into California counties. San Diego County obviously gets a lot of refugees. Historically, was a center of refugees, which makes it an attractive placement place placement place <laughs> placement for some of these uh, folks um, fleeing such uh, scary situations. So. You show it's very interesting that over the last 12 months from October 2015 through September 30th, 2016, San Diego would get about 150, 170 uh, refugees every month. And then all of a sudden in June 2016, it was 279, 256, August 2016 was 620, and September 762, it's like spiked right before uh, the president election.
2: Huge spike of refugees, many of whom, not all of whom, but many of whom are landing in El Cajon. Um, there was a lot that surprised me about that data. The spike surprised me. Um, and I, you know, I don't know exactly the reasons, but I think there was some acceleration by the, by the Obama administration to pull in refugees who were in process um, as they saw that the election might be going one way or the other. So that could explain part of it. And the other part, the other aspect of the data that surprised me was how San Diego is the number one receiver of refugees in California. Um, I didn't know that. You know, we're, we are um, welcoming more refugees in San Diego than Los Angeles County is, which is a much larger um, county. So um, it's there's a lot happening here.
1: Yeah. So, David was really interesting because he sees it as a attribute of the school system and the strength of the school system to be dealing with uh, that kind of diversity. And, you know, the area is a center for refugees in part because for a long time it was settled by Iraqi Christians mm-hmm. and there's so many of them. And now the languages that they master and a lot of the support systems they built have obviously helped others that come in. So, David is a uh, was a wonderful guest talking about not only the refugee situation but also the changes to the curriculum that they've made there. Uh, really switching it from teacher performing and lecturing and and guiding students to students being um, guided through technology and the and the teachers sort of coaching and helping along the side of it.
2: Yeah, this so personalized learning is the term that um, is often used for this. Big, big change in education that Cajon Valley is really out in front on, alongside um, Vista Unified School District and a few other places in San Diego County. Um, it's a dramatic change, and what what David explains um, is that it helps them to adapt to kids who are coming to them at all different levels. So, uh, we should, I'll let him I'll let him explain more, but
1: but first this week's number of the week is David Miaschero. He's the superintendent of the Cajon Valley Union School District. David, what is our
0: number of the week? The number of the week is 13. Uh, TED.com has created 13 lessons that help kids take an idea and turn it into a solution-based approach to something in the world, and then take that idea and turn it into a presentation and performance on stage. So the first few lessons are about ideation. And the last two lessons are building your slide deck and killing your audience. 13 lessons on ed.ted.com, free for everybody. And what is working, David? What's working is love. We have an amazing new population of refugee students. We have an amazing political time right now. We have technology changing a lot of things we do, especially in school. And from our city council to our mayor, our city manager... Local pastors, business owners, and teachers, we get together, we pray about what's important in our city, we talk about our issues, and we love one another. And I think that's what makes El Cajon the best place to live, work, play, and raise a family.
1: Well, there you go. I take that.
0: David Miyashiro, superintendent
1: of the Cajon Valley Union School District. Thank you for coming in. Thank you for having me.
0: It's nice to hear you and see you in person, finally.
1: Cool. Thanks. So, All right. Describe the Cone Valley District. What are we talking about? How many students? K-8, right? Pre-K through eight. Oh,
0: right. (laughs) We serve almost 18,000 students now, a variety of languages and cultural, ethnic diversity. And um, we're home to the largest uh, refugee population in the country Mm -hmm. in terms of newcomers, especially from the Middle East in recent years. Right. And so we're talking about East County mostly. East County. Do your
2: borders um, correspond to the borders of um, El Cajon?
0: El Cajon, uh, translated into Spanish, is the big box. Mm -hmm. And that's an interesting analogy because we have a box that ranges all the way out past Alpine through lakeside, parts of La Mesa and Santee, and a large unincorporated part of San Diego in the Rancho San San Diego community. Yeah, I like that area. All right, so
1: when you say refugees... uh, A lot of people, when they think about that area and refugees, they're talking about uh, Iraqi Chaldeans usually. Uh, That was the the first wave
0: uh, a a generation or two ago. There was a large settlement of very successful business owners and Mm -hmm. doctors and lawyers who came from Iraq and settled here. Mm -hmm. And recently we've seen a large increase in Iraqi, Syrian, and Afghanistan refugees, Somalian also. Uh, We've received almost 900 in the last calendar year.
1: Often, uh, they like to settle refugees where they're going to be able to meet others who have gone through the process, where they're going to be able to find resources, read the same languages some places, that sort of thing. It makes that area more attractive, right? That's them.
0: that's correct. And so re- uh, refugees are placed all over the country, Nebraska, Kansas, Idaho, yeah, and Michigan. And when they're settled, they tend to want to go to a, a warmer climate, maybe something more familiar to them where they don't have to wear 15 layers of clothes. Mm -hmm. And San Diego is is just that community, and there's a a ton of resources for them as far as foods and languages and and churches that are familiar to them.
2: Hmm. Yeah, I was surprised to learn that San Diego is the biggest uh, receiver of refugees in the state of California. Correct. Far far more, for example, than Los Angeles, which is a— a much larger county.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, the reason we're talking about it, obviously it's in the news a lot lately, but um, it is a particular facet of your district. It's uh, it's something you have to deal with every day.
0: It's something that we have the the, the good fortune to to do every day. Yeah. Why do you say that? Um, the the newcomers to our district and the diversity of our community really add to the experience of every student and every person in our our city, and I think the strength and diversity has made us stronger has allowed us to open our eyes to bigger things than just standardized test scores. Um, And I think we're better because of it. I really do. I think our children, especially our children who um, are here three, four generations, uh, are benefiting as opposed to other areas that aren't exposed to a diverse population of beliefs and ideas and customs. Well
1: I mean what particular challenges are you dealing with? there's obviously language and english language learning we talk about that on the show a lot I mean what other things does a refugee come with that you you need to adjust or actually benefit from sometimes
0: Yeah for the for this most recent upsurge of students trauma is one Yeah and a lot of our kids have experienced a lot of horrible things in their very short lives very recently and Understanding who they are and getting to know them as people and learning what their life experiences are is more important than understanding, well, where are they reading and how is their math scores right now? We need to understand, you know, how can we make this a safe place for them? Um, The other thing is language. A lot of our kids haven't even developed formal language in their home country because they've been in refugee camps or haven't had the opportunity to attend formal school prior to coming to us at age 10, 12, sometimes in high school. And that presents a significant challenge, something we haven't had to deal with before.
1: When we're talking about eighteen thousand students, how many of you, how many of them would you say are, are coming from a displacement situation like that?
0: Over the years, I would guesstimate about three or four thousand. Oh wow! Not all this year. Sure, this year, sure. This year, about nine hundred, but over the years um, since I've been there, at least about three or four thousand. Hmm. Wow.
2: So, what is what is the approach when you have a newcomer student who's a refugee? What What are the first things that they experience when they come into your district?
0: Uh, we have a family, community, a family and community engagement officer. I think you met A.L. Bergman. And he's created a family and community engagement office that has multiple uh, translators and people who understand c- the cultures of people coming in. And our job is to really just make a connection between the families as a whole, not just the child, but the entire family. To show them that school is a safe place, that this is a place where you can trust that when you drop your kid off at 8 and come back at 3, they're going to be better than they were before you dropped them off. Um, And then really establish the open lines of communication so we can serve them the best that we can. Mm -hmm. So they receive welcome. They receive love. They receive information and and numbers that they can call when they have questions. Mm -hmm.
2: I did see that when I visited um, Naranka Elementary School a couple of days ago. The teachers were really... Um, feeling like they were able to be pretty effective with kids. And I think they were a little surprised by how the connections with family really enhanced their work with with the children, Um, and they are looking forward to doing more of that in the future. But what are the educational – now tell us about the educational side of um, working with a newcomer student.
0: Yeah, and I think that a district like ours who we've been on – a four-year journey of personalized and blended learning through the smart use of technology. And when kids open their Chromebook as opposed to a textbook, they're going to receive instruction and uh, teaching that's right at their level based on a screening that, that we can do with the computer adaptive assessments. And so no child is, is checked out. Mm-hmm. Every child's dialed in. And we also have students who maybe aren't ready to get on a computer but need to have one-on-one in small group. And that's what that initial screening process is for, is to determine uh, what's the appropriate placement. Um, does this child need to be in a more contained environment with peers that are more alike? Are they ready for the general mainstream? The best place to learn English is in a mainstream classroom of English speakers. And so the last thing we want to do is isolate our newcomers and put them in one place where they're not going to have any strong models of language. But um, placement and, and needs identification, especially in terms of special education, or from social emotional trauma.
1: Well, your school district is known for using tech. Why
0: what stands out about? What are you proud of? Um, I'm proud of our teachers. Uh th- the change process from uh a fixed curriculum to an open set of resources where students can, you know, work at their own pace. It's it, that's a big change and our teachers have embraced it, just like they've embraced our newcomers. And um, yeah, we've had res- visitors from all over the country just this last year, from Houston, from Baltimore, Virginia last week, to learn about how we're achieving our goals. So
1: w- let me just translate it one more level down what you're talking about. When you say going from a fixed curriculum to these individual situations, what you're talking about is rather than every day the teacher get up and give a performance a- according to a certain plan, that what you're talking about is the, that they're almost coaching kids through these these technology tools?
0: Yeah. And I'll, I'm going to draw on Laura's expertise with er- early childhood education here, but my daughter's in a Montessori preschool. Mm-hmm. And so she started when she was two years old and she doesn't go to the next room at the end of 180 days of a formal school year. She moves when she's ready. After she, after she demonstrates a certain amount of skill and competency and a maturity, the teachers then collaborate and say, okay, she's ready for this room now. And for some kids that takes six months. For some kids that takes a year and a half. In our environment, it's very similar in the sense that the, the variable that we're trying to change is time and the constant is learning. And so if we can say that, that kids can spend you know, two to three months on fractions if they need it, and then the kids that are, are advanced can move on to something more complex and they can all exist in the same classroom, that's hard to manage as a teacher. But with some of the new technology tools and the smart adaptive curriculum in math and language arts, that's possible. If the teacher's willing to let go of control of the classroom and turn that over to the student and let the student be in charge of their own learning with the teacher more as a, a facilitator of learning or, you know, a guide on the side.
2: I love, I really am excited about this change in education and, um, you know, on balance, I'm sure it's a positive one. One thing that I wonder about is how do you ensure when each child's working at their own pace that you don't inadvertently exacerbate differences? So Um, what's your experience or observation in Cajon Valley? Are your high flyers just racing ahead? um, And are you able to keep your kids who maybe are struggling or newcomer to the country um, on a really fast pace?
0: Yeah, anecdotally, we've seen more progress. So typically when a student struggles in math, they get more math. And so they spend more of the day feeling bad about themselves than they would have if they had more balanced curriculum. In this scenario, the, the kids who are ready to move, move, and the kids who need more time have more time, but we don't take away the arts and physical education and other areas where kids might shine. Mm-hmm. There's a school district in Michigan called Fraser Public Schools that I took my staff to. They're a K-12 district um, close to Michigan State and Kent, Kent University and a couple JCs, and they're doing away with grade levels as a whole. Mm. It's all competency-based learning where kids can advance as they're ready. We saw middle school and high school kids working on their associate's degree. We saw kids, juniors and seniors, almost complete with their four-year degrees from Michigan State without having to leave the high school campus. And the system of collaboration between you know pre-K-12 and the universities and community colleges is what our goal is, so that our kids don't have to, to be bound by a time-based system that's very convenient for adults, but not so engaging for children.
1: I think... So I think about that a lot when we've had so many discussions that have touched on this in different ways, you know, one of them being this idea of graduation and graduation standards and what it means. And when you start to like change them or avoid them or whatever, you're starting to redefine what it means to even get an education. And so I guess I, I, I find all that quite attractive, what you're describing. On the other hand, I wonder, you know, is there that's the positive and the beautiful side of it. But is there a way that that could be warped to mean like you just sort of shove kids through some sort of um, process that doesn't actually give them what we might think of in education? But then it also makes me wonder what what is an education at that point? So what are are you creating through that process that you can say this person is now educated as much as I can give him?
0: Great. So one of the things that I I found is a bright spot in San Diego is Junior Achievement in BizTown. Uh, they're right down the street in, I think, Mission Valley. Yeah. And the Think of It lab at Qualcomm that was created by Ed Hidalgo, where they take kids through the world of work and work-based experiences. So so these cards here, I brought a couple. It shows the kids what the projected growth of the job is, what the education level is, uh, what the Lexile reading score must be for them to be accepted in that, in that profession. And then as the kids are working on their reading programs, their Lexile score is right in the top left-hand side of the corner. So they see the correlation between what they're doing now in school and what their goals might be in the future. And on the back side of the card, there's a QR code that'll take them to an experience through the through the lens of this profession. And our goal is to take kids through every type of uh, San Diego priority sector, work or job, and then do that with the global community of jobs by the time they're eighth grade, so that when they choose a pathway or a career tech program, They're very informed, they know themselves, they know their strengths and interests, and have a good idea of what type of career they might want to have. If our goal is for kids to be proficient or advanced, our goal is for kids to have great scores in the college entrance exams, we'll go on one path. If our goal is to say that every child, once they leave us, will be engaged in happy, healthy relationships, they'll have a strong sense of self, and they'll be gainfully employed in a job that resonates with them towards a pathway or a career of their choice, that's our measure of success, and you don't get that measure on any of the current measures. So we, we're designing a process with the University of San Diego with Heather, Heather Latimer, and she's developed a longitudinal study to see once kids leave us uh, at, as seniors in high school, for the next eight to ten years, are they engaged in happy relationships, are they personally happy, and are they in a job that is resonating with their, their sense of uh, purpose?
1: You said you just started that.
0: They're creating it now. The board just approved a quarter million dollar contract to design the study, and it'll be the first study of its kind. Hmm.
2: I guess the reason that the field fell so heavily on reading and math scores is because it's out of recognition that each of the jobs that that are on these cards that you handed us need the um, holders of those jobs to be able to read and able to do math and able to solve problems and so we're using these test scores as proxies for job readiness, if you will. Um, so is it, you know, uh, is, it, is it an and or is it an or? Or how do you think about the, the skills that we can measure through tests versus this aspiration that is absolutely the right aspiration um, for, for our graduates and for our children?
0: Yeah, so 100%, we believe that literacy and numeracy are important. <laughs> <Good>. <laughs> we don't disregard them. Um, and we do put a heavy emphasis on that in our pre-K through third grade programs. And there are, are resources now that are personalized. It's not a strict textbook, but there are both online and print resources that we ha- have our teachers take kids through to develop those proficiencies. But once they get beyond that, our goal is to find them, help them find their areas of strengths and interests so that they're passionate about reading. For example, if if I were to take a a world history class, that's not something I particularly are interested in. It'll be hard for me to read and get through that material and then write a paper about it. But if you ask me to write a paper about hockey, I'll sit and watch videos all day long and read things and then write to you about, you know, Ovi and his shot, and, you know, because I'm interested in it. Mm -hmm. And so if we can turn the script around and say, okay, kids, what are you interested and passionate about? And then they research those things, then they're building their reading proficiency. They're using math in real world problems. And then they're going to deliver a TED Talk on stage to our TED Ed Clubs program and really learn how to to polish a presentation or performance. Those kids are going to compete for global jobs and local jobs far better than their counterparts that are are just focused on the curriculum and the end of your tests.
1: One of the things I hear a lot, especially with my own son, is they still have to learn things they don't want. That they're still that I keep getting that in different angles. I'm
2: is, getting that in high school, too, <laughs> yeah, and
1: so I, I where does that line? is like, you know, I, I I understand, and I'm very attracted and pulled towards the notion of like always stimulating them and going with what their passions are. And there's obviously something there. I mean, my son says he doesn't like math. and on the other hand, he's doing things in like Minecraft that are incredibly mathematical. And, you know I mean, he he was trying to build a a wall between two other walls. He wanted it in the middle and he couldn't figure out why he couldn't get in the middle. And he realized he needed an odd number of, of blocks on the one side so he could put it. I, he's doing math. It's just not with numbers and such. And so I'm trying to make him understand, you know, like there's, there's a relationship there. On the other hand, he also needs to learn that like, yeah, some things just aren't, aren't going to be exciting and fun. And is, or is that wrong?
2: And some things aren't exciting or fun until you learn about them. Yeah. Uh, I'm I'm hearing my Humanities friends um, talking about yeah, the need to be well-rounded. And, yeah, yeah enriched, yeah,
1: enriched no matter what. Yeah,
2: and if you only if you only I mean it's just it's just, it's an unanswerable question perhaps, but if you're only following your passions or only challenged to go deep in the things that already interest you, you may be missing out on things that um, give you new perspective or um, help you think about problems in new ways.
0: Yeah. So the the curriculum that we're working on called the World of Work with each grade level, kids are exposed to a new set of careers in every field. So it's not necessarily subject area, or like a humanities professor might say, an area of study. It's an area that someone is gainfully employed that is using that type of knowledge to do their work. And so as kids do these tasks on their learner profile, they'll they'll watch their Lexile level grow, but they'll also comment, on this job task, the health information technician, I didn't care for that so much. I'm going to mark that and I'm not going to maybe use that area of the RIASEC to drive my next career experience. And so, by the time they've gone through eighth grade with us, they've experienced almost every aspect of the government database of jobs, have identified their strengths and interests and how they aligned to the strengths and interests needed for that job, and then they've talked with uh, people ver- uh, through Skype or through um, experience ships and had real conversations with people doing this work in the field. We see this as the game-changer in the country in terms of unemployment. You know, in the last presidential election, both parties talked about jobs. We're going to create jobs. There's five million unfilled, high-paying jobs in America right now, yet unemployment is at its highest. That's K-12 education's fault. And so if we don't get relevant again, and it was relevant when we had the Industrial Revolution, we provided everyone a basic set of skills and they went to work in the factory, those jobs don't exist anymore the current world of work and the future world of work by 2027 are going to look so different yeah. if districts don't invest in teaching kids about what those jobs might be now and helping them develop the skills and expertise in those areas we're going to continue on our path of unemployment and a poor economy great uh,
1: <laughs> i'm this is why we're so urgent about this right now and this is why we're we're even doing these conversations so but i Want to get to like the actual again, classroom experience mm-hmm. a little bit, and I, just in my very minor experiences in performing for kids or whatever, it really does feel like the moment you get in front of kids, you realize it is a performance every day. It mm-hmm. is, a, and if you're if you have a curriculum, if you have a lesson plan in place, it's obviously easier if you prepare. Mm-hmm. Um, I think what you're dabbling in and what this conversation is going uh, in a, in a different ways is the idea that maybe others can prepare the actual experiences and you can um, take a different role as an educator mm-hmm. instead of having to plan all the time. It's, what is life like for some of your teachers with that in mind?
0: That's been the hardest shift. And I think for anyone... Hopefully everyone who will make this change, will experience, it, it goes from spending most of the time in performance mode to preparation mode. For our teachers, a lot of their time is spent in design and setting up the circumstances for the kids to engage in once they get there. And then while the kids are there, there's a lot less work, but more observation and inter- inter- engaging with small groups and kids one-on-one about what they're doing so that we, we can make sure that they're on task, but also have the opportunity to receive feedback. And then once the kids leave, there's a lot of work in aggregating data and looking at what the kids did so that we can have an informed experience the next day. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, pre student arrival and post student arrival, a lot of work. Uh, once the students are there, the students are working as opposed to the teacher performing and students listening. It's a shift from I'm going to teach and you're going to learn to you're going to work and I'm going to be there helping you with that path. And if you look at, like, we look at Finland as an example. The kids spend about 15 to 20 hours a week in school. That's half the time that our kids are there. The teachers still work a 40 to 60 hour work week. And that's because they're spending their time designing experiences and then talking with each other about their kids and what happened during the school day so they can plan for the next. Mm.
2: David, that's a, that is a huge shift in the teacher job. So how how are your teachers responding? And I'm also interested in how your existing teachers their uptake of it, but also the new teachers that are coming into your district, you're expanding, you're adding new kids. So I know you're hiring mm-hmm. new teachers yeah. all the time. So, so tell us also about how those new teachers, how well they are able to teach in this new mode. So yeah, yeah. Both.
0: our newest teachers are the most adaptable. They're, they're millennials. This is how they, they learn outside of school when they were kids. You know, they had devices, they had access to things when they wanted to learn something, they taught themselves on YouTube so they get this environment and they understand the resources out there on the internet. We also have teachers that were more my age or, or senior that when we were in school before the standardized testing movement, we had a lot of latitude mm-hmm. to create and, and design experiences for kids. We were curriculum creators. We didn't implement a curriculum. We designed it. And so those folks do well. The new folks do well. The group in between that started teaching during No Ch- Child Left Behind, where everything was handed to them and they were told just follow the curriculum, they're struggling the most.
2: That is so interesting. And
0: so we're, we're helping them unlearn bad practices they learned during that time period.
2: Are you having to uh, um, talk to your union about the contract? How, how many constraints do you run up against in this change in some of the contractual um, limits on, I don't know, t- time in classroom, time at school building, th- those kinds of things.
0: Yeah, it was one of the first conversations. Um, our, our union, pre- I think we're very lucky to have the union president we have. Um, and more common than not, the best teachers are part of the union. And we have that in Cajon Valley. So when they came and said, you know, this is a change in working di- conditions, we said, I know they're better, right? Um, that was a joke. <laughs> um we, we, we've recognized that, and so we had to be creative about professional development and rewarding teachers and compensating teachers, and it's been a, a dance back and forth to say, okay, we hear you, there's more pressure here, how can we help? Or where do we need to spend more in development?
1: Well, what conditions had to be in place from the board level to make that possible?
0: When the board hired me, they wanted change. We had a technology desert in Cajon Valley. Uh, students had maybe a computer lab at a school that they saw once a week at most, running Windows 97. Mm-hmm. And they wanted to move into a one-to-one environment. Um, that's where I came from in Encinitas. We had a one-to-one computer in, in, initiative.
2: When did you move to Cajon Valley? Uh,
0: 20, 2013, 2012-13. Okay. <clears throat> and so the, the board knew who they were hiring and they wanted change. And the board was out in front of the conversations when we met with parents and teachers at like parent nights the board was on stage with me talking about what, we're, what the future of education should look like.
2: And has your board been um, pretty stable since they hired you?
0: The board's changed a little bit, but we've fortunately had lots of success. We've been invited to the White House twice to share with the U.S. Department of Education as one of the top 35 school districts in the country in personalized learning. And so the board has been very proud of the accolades, but also proud of the work. And so their support has been constant, even though members have changed.
1: Great. David Miaschero, he's the superintendent of the Cajon Valley Union School District. Thank you for coming
0: in. Thank you.